This morning's text is taken from the book of Job, chapter 32. Job 32. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, became angry. He was angry at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He was angry also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he became angry. And Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite, answered, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, Let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. But it, but it is the spirit in a man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old that are wise, nor the aged that understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none that confuted Job or that answered his words among you. Beware lest you say, We have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. They are discomfited. They answer no more. They have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they do not speak? Because they stand there and answer no more? I also will give my answer. I also will declare my opinion. For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my heart is like wine that has no vent. Like new wineskins, it is ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any person or use flattery toward any man. For I do not know how to flatter, else would my Maker soon put an end to me. I'd like to ask a favor, especially of the members of our church, regarding tonight's service. You may remember I asked you when we ordained Paul Wyden uh, to pray on Sunday afternoon, and I would like to make that very specific that those who feel a burden for this church and its future and its ministers to devote 30 minutes this afternoon before 6 o'clock to sitting in a chair in some quiet place with the Bible in your lap, open it to wherever the Lord leads, and pray and read it for Tom Steller. To pray that both he and those of us who lead in this service of ordination tonight will be ready. You only get ordained once in a lifetime. It's more permanent than marriage. And we don't go into it lightly. We must go in in prayer. And so as a community, would we 
join together this afternoon from 1 to 6, finding that 30-minute slot so that when we come tonight, we'll know we've met with God and God will anoint Tom in response to our prayers with a power that will then accompany him and enable him for the rest of his ministry. Let's do that for him and for our church. Way back when I decided to speak on this text, it was because it was Ordination Sunday that I chose to speak on Let the Young Speak, so that you'll know how I hit upon this text this morning. What I'd like to do is begin at Job 1 and then jump over to Job 32. So if you want to follow with me, we'll look at chapter 1 first, and then we will leapfrog over all the half-truths in the middle and get to Elihu in chapter 32. Job was a good and a rich man. It says in verse 1, he was blameless, upright, feared God, turned away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses, and many servants. He was righteous and he was rich. And one day, Satan approaches God and says, the only reason Job worships you is because you've made him rich. And God, in response to that, lengthens the leash of Satan far enough for Satan to clean house with Job. The oxen and the asses were stolen by the Sabaeans. The servants were all killed. Fire fell from heaven and destroyed all the sheep. The Chaldeans took all the camels away, and all ten of his children died in a single day when the house collapsed. And all that news reaches Job in one afternoon. And it says in verse 20, Job arose, rent his robe, shaved his head, fell upon the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even though God had permitted Satan to wreak havoc in Job's life, Job sees behind the calamity the power and the will of God. It is God who gave. It is God who took. God shall be worshipped. And the author adds in verse 22, In all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. It is not wrong to see the power and the will of God behind the calamities of our lives. It is wrong to say God is wrong. In chapter 2, Satan approaches God again. Skin for skin, sure, he keeps on worshiping you. He's got his health. Take away his health and he'll curse you to his face. And God lets the leash out just a little farther. And Job gets sores, boils, that he has to scrape with a potsherd from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet in misery day after day. 
And when his wife urges him to curse God and die, he says in verse 10 of chapter 2, Shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not receive evil? And again, the writer adds, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. But as the suffering drags on and the friends start to gather, Job's testimony to God's sovereign rights begins to waver. And in the next 29 chapters, there's this wrangling between Job and Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar about how it can be that God brings such suffering upon Job while Job is a man of integrity, a man who fears God, a man who turns away from evil. God himself in chapter 1, verse 8, and in chapter 2, verse 3, had said he's a God-fearing man. He's a man of integrity, uprightness. He has turned away from evil. How then, the problem rises, can this just God unleash such suffering on Job? The answers of Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar are inadequate. And therefore, at the end of chapter 31, it is Job who has the last word, and he is just as persuaded as ever that he is innocent. He's a man of integrity. And all he can conclude is that God unjustly has become his enemy. Now, during those 29 chapters from 2 to 31, a young man, Elihu, has been sitting there listening to all of this confusion going on between Job and Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. And when Job finishes defending himself, and the three friends finish defending God, Elihu explodes like a champagne bottle. And for six chapters, he holds forth about what his view is of what's going on in Job's life. Now, lots of students of this book think that the speeches of Elihu are just as bad as the speeches of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And that all it is is a repetition of all their half-truths. But I don't think that's the case. I think that Elihu's speech from chapter 32 through chapter 37 is a preliminary word from God through his messenger before God himself takes the word in chapter 38 leading up to that solution. And there are four reasons why I think that's the case. First, if Elihu is simply repeating all the half-cocked ideas of those three comforters, do we need six more chapters? We've come through 29 chapters of confusion. Do we need six more to make the point? I don't think so. Surely there's an advance in the things that Elihu has to say. Second reason. In chapter 32, verses 2 and 3, and you can shift over there now because we're going to spend the rest of our time in that chapter. In chapter 32, verses 2 and 3, Elihu says that his aim is to disagree with Job and to disagree with the friend. Something new is on the horizon. Third, when Elihu is finished in chapter 37, Job does not say a word. 
He does not dispute with Elihu like he did every time the others spoke. Job disputed with them. He is silent, and God takes the word in chapter 38 and finishes his justification. And the fourth reason, and perhaps the most important, when God in chapter 42 of Job attacks the false comforters, he mentions Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, verse 7, not Elihu. He has no criticisms of what Elihu has said. And therefore, I feel justified to preach from Elihu as the word of God and not the word of man. So what's the main point of this chapter? Verses 8 and 9, I think, are the main assertion, and the rest of it fills out what is said there. It is the Spirit of God in a man, the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. It is not the old that are wise nor the aged that understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me declare my opinion. The main lesson of this introductory chapter to Elihu's speech is that age is not the criterion of wisdom. Age does not bring wisdom. God brings wisdom by his Spirit. In other words, there is no necessary connection between a gray head and good theology. There is no necessary connection between a wizened face and a wise heart. It is not the old that are wise, nor the aged that understand, says Elihu. It is the Spirit of God in a man that makes him understand. Of course, there's no necessary connection between youth and wisdom either. What Elihu has done for us is remove age as the dominant consideration in deciding who is wise and who is understanding. He teaches us that there may be folly in the old and there may be folly in the young. There may be wisdom in the young and there may be wisdom in the old, and when we are engaged in a search for wisdom and understanding, we do not end our search with the question, How old is he? We end our search with the question, Where is the man who gives evidence that there is the spirit of knowledge and wisdom within him? And so Elijah gives us an encouragement and a warning. The warning is this, as we grow older, we must not assume that the ideas we have cherished longest are the truest. They may be, and they may not be. We must test our oldest and newest ideas against the standard of God as he reveals himself by his spirit in his word, there is no ground for boasting in the mere accumulation of years. And all those erroneous notions of Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, these aged men, don't gain one millimeter in validity because they have been held for decades in the minds of the religious. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's encouragement as well as warning. Elihu gives it this way. 
Let not only the old but also the young speak. If the Spirit of God has filled you with a word and a burden, deliver it, regardless of your age. It is the same encouragement we heard from Paul in 1 Timothy 4. Let no one despise your youth, Tom Steller or Timothy, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. It's the same confidence that the Apostle John had when he wrote, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you shall overcome the evil one. From whom then shall we seek wisdom? To whom shall we listen in the church when we are hungry for counsel? To the old? To the young? We will listen to those in whom the spirit of knowledge and wisdom is manifest, whether they are old or whether they are young. So my main point now, then, is this. Let us not at Bethlehem speak to one another as old. And let us not speak to one another as young. Let us speak to one another as those driven, moved, and stirred by the Holy Spirit, whether we are old or whether we are young. Let us not be snobbish towards one another, as though the freshness of youth or the seasoning of age is the criterion of truth. It isn't. But let us... Old and young, submit ourselves to the word of God. And when the spirit moves, let us speak. Now, it becomes very important then, doesn't it, that we can recognize such wisdom, such a spirit from the Lord in a young man or an old man, a young woman or an old woman. And therefore, I find five characteristics of such a person in this chapter 32 that I'll mention briefly. First, Elihu, representing people who are stirred by the Spirit, even if they are young, is slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. Verse 4, Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. Verses 6 and 7. I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. Verse 11. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention. When the Spirit of God is in a young man's heart or an old man's heart, he is not hasty. He is not impulsive or impetuous. The Spirit makes us conscious of our frailness, of our fallibility, of how vast the horizon is to which we must yet attain in our knowledge. James puts it this way, Let every man be quick to hear, quick to to listen, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. It is so easy when we feel that we have a burden from the Lord 
to become presumptuous and to lose the kind of meekness and gentleness that goes with a learner. There's the danger for an Elihu. But those whose burden is from the Spirit will be slow to speak, slow to anger. They will listen. They will want to grow. They will want to gain insight wherever it can be had. Second characteristic. There does come a point, however, when the Spirit-driven man gets angry. Verse 2. Elihu became angry. He was angry at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He was angry also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, though they declared Job to be in the wrong. Most human anger is bad because most human anger comes from a heart that is proud and has been piqued and feels like some of its rights have been denied and aims at revenge. Therefore, James is right to say that the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. But there is a rare and holy anger that comes from and aims at the righteousness of God. The man or the woman who is filled by the Spirit will be humble, gentle, slow to speak, will sit in silence for 29 chapters of confused conversation. But there will come a point when the self-justification of man and the belittling of God can no longer be tolerated by his holy sentiments, and he will get angry, and he will speak. And the mark of that righteous anger will be that it is not triggered by the fact that he has been belittled. That'll be water off the duck's back for a worm. But rather that God has been belittled. That will not be brooked. And so it says that he was angry at Job because he justified himself rather than God third characteristic. When a person is burdened from the Lord, from the Holy Spirit with some saying or some message, he can find no relief until he speaks it. Verses 18 to 20. I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my heart is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins. It is ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief, I must open my lips and answer. It's not as though you lose control like a drunk man. Paul said the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. The point here is that a person who is stirred by the Spirit of God is passionate for the truth. He says with the psalmist, my heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. He says with Jeremiah the prophet, There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in. Oh, how we need in the church spiritual leaders with passion for the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. We need logic on fire, as John Stott calls it.
We need truth, a flame with zeal. We need the light of sound reason and the heat of solid, soaring love for God Almighty. There is no disjunction in those two things. Where are the people, young or old, whose hearts are aflame with the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God? The person who is burdened with a word from the Spirit of God cannot find relief until it is out. And that's everyone in here from time to time. Fourth characteristic, the saint who is moved to speak by the Spirit of God does not flatter and is not partial. Verse 21 and 22. I will not show partiality to any person or use flattery towards any man, for I do not know how to flatter, else would my Maker soon put an end to me. What is flattery? Flattery is calling attention to someone's real or imaginary strengths in the hopes that we can win some favor, curry some favor from them. Flattery does not swear allegiance to the truth. It may use truth if it's expedient, but its allegiance is to the favor of those to whom it is speaking. And it will, if necessary, distort the truth in order to win approval, be accepted, get in the good graces of those who are important. It seems to me that behind all flattery is a heart that does not trust God. Because isn't the reason we flatter because we're afraid. We're afraid that if we speak the truth and are impartial, relationships might deteriorate, life might become miserable. And does that not mean we do not trust God to fulfill his promise that no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly, which surely means no good thing will he withhold from those who don't flatter? We don't believe him. And therefore we flatter and we connive and we try to win approval through dishonesty. But let me qualify that not all compliment is flattery. There is a genuine compliment which is a spontaneous overflow of gratitude and delight in something good and beautiful and valuable that we've seen. And we can't hold it in. And we thank people. And we tell people how great it was. And that's the furthest thing from flattery. But compliments that are calculated to curry favor are despicable in the eyes of God, and in all of our eyes, too. We don't like flatterers. And so the person who is filled by the Spirit, whose words are being given by God, and he is being borne along on the wind of the Almighty, is at rest in the promises of God, and knows that if he speaks the truth and it hurts him, no good thing will God withhold from him as he walks uprightly. Finally, the last characteristic of the person who is 
moved by the Spirit rather than by his age to speak, that person brings forth genuine theological true insight which helps us understand the ways of God and enables us to trust him even through suffering. Elihu did not agree with Job that Job was so full of integrity and without transgression. He acknowledged Job was a man of uprightness. He was a man of righteousness in one very limited sense. He was a man who feared the Lord, but there lay dormant in Job's heart remnants of pride and rebellion and self-reliance. And as soon as the suffering endured too long, they were roused, and Job took issue with God. But Elihu doesn't agree either with the solution of the friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. He does not agree that Job's suffering is a punishment for the sin of Job. Elihu's solution to Job's dilemma is this. The suffering that God has unleashed upon Job is not punitive, it is curative. It is not a punishment, it is a cure, a purification. It is not the result of God's anger at this son, it is the remedy of his love. In love he has afflicted his son, that the vestiges of pride and self-reliance and rebellion might be swept out of his heart from all of its recesses, and he might be purged pure. Now, the place I get that is from Job chapter 33, if you want to note with me here at the end. Starting at verse 14, Elihu says that God speaks to man in two ways, 33:14, And in these two ways, God's purpose is to keep man back from the pit to save him from spiritual destruction. Verse 14, God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, that's the first way. In a vision of the night when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and cut off pride from man. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. God is after man for his good in his terrifying warnings. But the second way that God speaks to man is given in verse 19, and this applies directly to Job. Man is also chastened with pain upon his bed and with continual strife in his bones. And then he goes on and describes that sickness and how man is moved to seek God and confess sin. And then he says in verse 29, Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit that he may see the light of life. And then over in chapter 36, verse 15, he says it another way. God delivers the afflicted 
with or by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. That's the second way that God speaks to man for his good. And so Elihu's answer to Job is not that Job only or that God only treats people with strict vindicatory justice and that Job is getting exactly what he deserves. That's not Elihu's solution. He is a righteous, God-fearing man of faith. He is a son of God and his suffering is a loving gift, as Paul says in Philippians 1, for the good purpose of uncovering remaining imperfections and purging the heart of all the remnants of pride.